Working Blind, sharing the stories of working blind people from across the globe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Blind. This is the first episode that I've actually recorded since the coronavirus pandemic started, so we may end up talking a bit about that. Today I am here with Matthew Johnson, who is a lawyer, and he's going to tell us about his life and his work. Hi, Matthew. How you doing? Good, how are you? Can't complain too much. Even though you're locked down? Well, you know, I've been working from home since about April, but to be honest, it hasn't it hasn't changed much for me. Well, I'm sure a lot of your work is done on the computer, and we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, so I just I want you to tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, about your job and about your life up until this point, just briefly. So um, just a premise. Uh, I work in IT and data for a national firm in the UK. So um, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the area, I will do everything from uh, software development contracts and cloud computing contracts uh, through to sort of data protection and privacy law and uh, that kind of thing. So pretty much uh, everything with a, with a strong tech focus and a strong business focus uh, is, is, is where I would say most, if not all, of my law practice uh, comes from. Uh, I've been a qualified lawyer for five years, so I've been in, in the legal profession for seven now. And um, basically, I came to law after my first degree. I did my first degree in languages um, and then switched into law, did a postgrad in law, uh, which I think it's still called the GDL, they might change it, um, where you take the three years worth of an entire law degree and then zip them up into one year um, where every student loses a lot of sleep and in my case, it breaks a coffee maker. Um, and then you do one further year and then you're two years as a trainee. So the whole uh, route to being a lawyer, if you already have a degree, is four years. If you don't have a degree, you do three years and then the extra year. So it's still, it's still four, but it's different. And then you do two years of training. But you didn't grow up in the UK, did you? And can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I grew up in Bermuda originally, um, 65,000 people, very small island in the Caribbean. Uh, Bermuda is known for, you know, a couple of things, uh, tourism and tax evasion being the most prominent, and um, cricket sometimes. And if, uh, so I grew up there till I was 15 and uh, came to the UK. So, you know, came to Worcester, did that for three years uh, in the UK, and then stayed because I knew, you know, going back to Bermuda, the accessibility wasn't there. I was not going to get a job there, straight up. Um, and had no interest in, in, in trying. So uh, yeah, Bermuda born and then lived now over just a bit over half my life in the UK. So in terms of when you were growing up in Bermuda, what access did you actually have to schooling and how typical is it for blind children in Bermuda? I mean, how many blind people are there for a start and what kind of access do they have to even a primary education? So this is a really difficult question. Um, I think also it's changing quite a lot nowadays uh, because I was one of the first to do it. Um, I was... I th- I think I I am actually the first uh, blind Bermudian to get as far as university. I think that that's actually true, um, but I'm happy to be corrected on that, but I think I'm right. And, um, you know, back when I was doing it, uh, I had an aide, basically, who, you know, did Braille and did the access and, and, and made sure that things were Brailled up. But we didn't get books 
imported most of the time, or if we did, they came about halfway through the school year, and we only got the first five volumes, which had already been studied, so they were of no use. You know, all that kind of stuff happened a lot. So most of the time, what we ended up doing was OCRing, uh, you know, scanning the page that we needed, uh, preferably before the class in which I needed it, uh, getting it proofed, you know, f with her help, uh, and uh, and getting it on disk. So, you know, from very young age, I was using a laptop to do everything. But the only way that that worked is because I had a, a charity that was backing me uh, and I did a lot of my own fundraising with that charity. I gave speeches to funding bodies when I was 10 and networked and stuff uh, from an early age because that was the only way I was going to pay her salary. That was the only way I was going to be able to buy the laptop and the access software uh, was to, to be out there and talking about it. Uh, and getting good grades and you know what I mean uh, basically towing the line to make all that happen so nowadays it is different there is a charity um, well it's much more advanced it's the same charity but it's called Vision Bermuda now and they're doing stuff with younger students there's actually uh, a UK trained um, uh, blind specialist out there now who's doing work there they still have an incredibly long way to go and they ask me things on occasion about how to do x y and z in an accessible way or you know what i think is the best way forward when teaching someone this that or the other thing uh but i think they they are improving uh so i don't know from a modern perspective now how good it is for someone who's young and, and blind in bermuda uh, but i can tell you i was one of the first to do it and we made our own rules because there were none so the government doesn't actually support financially blind students in education no even now they certainly didn't back then i i strongly doubt that they do now i don't want to give a definitive on it uh in terms of 2020 but i can certainly say that back then they did not and uh there was no interest in that uh at the time what motivated you or your family for you to go to Worcester? I presume better access. Well, my parents weren't qualified to teach, you know, things like cooking and, 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 and life skills. And they, they thought, perhaps erroneously, that Worcester would, uh, you know, would fill the gap, you know, and I would be uh, progressing academically whilst at the same time learning uh, the life skills that I would would need you know going on and how did your life change because you were fairly young when you basically moved to the uk by yourself although you went to school i'm sure it was a huge cultural adjustment in some ways oh it was i mean the main the main thing for me was i had never so i met like i've met like one other blind person before i was 15 like one <laughs> uh you know one young person who was blind who was going through the same stuff in bermuda she came to england as well eventually and um yeah but i didn't know any other blind people right so i'm going into to worcester and i'm thinking this is this is so bizarre like so many people around are, are having the same things and having the same problems and uh and the, like you go to the canteen and it's a long bar where you go down and get given food uh you know without having to think about how am i going to dish this up without spilling it everywhere you know all of this stuff is is, is is already thought of and and dealt with sometimes arguably not in the best way but on your first day you're just thinking oh man this all just suddenly works um how is that possible um and 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 it that impression over the years has stayed with me to the extent that I sometimes get frustrated when people in the UK, you know, uh, complain about access and, and sort of say, well, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Why can't I get this? And why are I, why haven't I not, why am I not being given this, that, and the other thing? And I think you have no idea by, you know, how lucky you are to get to this point. You have absolutely no conception of what it's like to, to, to build your own rule set because you don't have one. You know, and that's that's where I come from. And so I take a slightly harder line on this sometimes than, than other people do because I know the difference. Right, because you grew up somewhere where there just wasn't that level of choice. So access was not even considered. 
And so you went to Worcester and you studied for your A-levels and what was the experience like there in terms of access and then when you progressed on to university for your languages degree? Um, I mean, Worcester was good for access. I did, you know, I did I did languages then and uh, politics and stuff. And I I think my main, the battle, the battle that I fought at Worcester, um, perhaps unbeknownst to most of them, uh, the, the students that came after me then benefited from me fighting certain battles when I was there because I, I said from the beginning, no, I'm not accepting this massive, you know, five volume textbook for A-level politics. I'm not accepting it in Braille. Give it to me electronically. And, you know, this was a massive battle with the administration to say, well, you're going to get it in Braille because this. And I said, no, I'll get you an A grade, but you give it to me in the format that I, I wanted in. And, and, and I did. Uh, kept my word on that one. But it was a massive thing, you know. Uh, and then, of course, as soon as everyone found out that I had been given stuff in electronic format, everyone else was clamoring for it to be to be given electronically, right? So uh, I started a bit of a revolution, which I hope continued after I left. Um I think it probably yeah. has, given what I know of the technology. I mean, and certainly having a blind person working in IT now at Worcester, students are oh, using... Wow. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, Sean, yeah. So students hey, Sean. are using a lot of... I mean, they may use Braille, but often refreshable Braille, which obviously is great because you can have your access to electronic books and your Braille if that's how you find learning effective. But it means you have the convenience of electronic formats as well. So I think that has stayed at least to an extent um what was university like for you so university um oh university was fine to be honest i uh a lot of that was i mean it was just on the cusp of changing you know there was a lot of book based textbook stuff but it was starting to go online you know 20 it was 2007 uh so you know a lot of people were starting to read their uni textbooks online but it hadn't necessarily gone so i'm in the situation where i'm ringing up you know french i remember ringing achette uh in in paris to try and convince them uh, in my first year to send me something uh you know electronically or whatever and having this debate in french about accessibility with the <laughs> with the guy at achette right who did not want to talk to me um and and all this and i'm thinking well this is a trial by fire um but you do it because you're the one who has to do it um i think now it's probably easier i hope it is uh in that sense but the team that i had at at, at uni was fantastic and they were always so ready to be like oh we, we'll just record it if it's not ready you know, we'll just we'll just sit with there with a dictaphone for a couple hours and just record the text. Of course, then tests my listening skills when it's supposed to be testing my reading skills. But that's a different question. Um, yeah. Right. But, you know, so, you know, they were always ready to, to jump in and, and do, which was which was awesome. Uh, that was the main thing. You know, uh, you got to have a team who's ready to to to, to back you. Um, and they could see that I love the work and all that. And then they were more than willing to to, to do it. So, uh, so that, that went pretty well. Uh, I did a year in Spain, um, which, I mean, you had a great experience in your year abroad. I had a terrible experience yeah. in my year abroad um, because I was teaching and I think you went to a uni, didn't you? Um, I did. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should have done Columbia. that. I, I was, I was, I was um, much like the rest of my life. I was swayed by the promise of money. Um, and, um, <laughs> hey, man, look. I might as well own it. Uh, you know, I was uh, basically told, well, you're going to get paid if you go and teach. And uh, I, I, you know, thought that was a great idea. Um, so, yeah, I don't necessarily always recommend that. Uh, but, you know, over the uni years, I, I, I think access was in general reasonably good. Um, I didn't have any major issues. 
How did you find access to the social side of uni? Because I had overall a decent experience. I was never massively popular, but I think that's probably my personality, to be honest, if we're being very real about this. Um, but I, I never really felt overly excluded. But what was it like for you? No, that I, I really, really struggled with, especially because I was coming out of a situation where I was obviously I was in Bermuda, then I was at Worcester and then I was in uni and then, oof, oy. you know, the jump is real. Right. And I, I've seen multiple people, so many people get affected by this. And, uh, you know, it's it's a question then of how do you then deal with this this massive campus of 16,000 students who, um, you know, who just like you obviously, well, not just like me, but just like me in the sense of our, our dealing with this great big new experience. But then they're obviously just leaving home. They're uncertain about absolutely everything. They're not used to living on their own, 95% of them. Uh, you know, so how do you work within the confines of, of that experience? That was really, really difficult. And um, eventually the strategies that I, you know, ended up using were that I, I connected well with people on my course because they were like French societies and Spanish societies and stuff like that who would do meetups and study type sessions and practices with native speakers and that kind of stuff. That's where I found my nerdy people. Um, and, uh, you know, small groups, you're not in clubs, you're the emphasis in those contexts is on the ability to communicate. Um, and so that played to the strength, right? So my, my, my thought with all of this is always play to the, your strengths. Don't try and link up with the people on your corridor and go to a club because that's where they're going because you're not going to, in most cases, you're probably not going to be m comfortable there. You're not going to be able to show yourself that well if you're struggling to communicate, navigate, and all the rest of it with people you don't know and don't know you, right? Play to the strengths that you know you have uh, is, is the advice that I tend to give on that. But, you know, I've seen it work for other people. You know what I mean? Like I've seen it work for other people where they go to these crazy things and, 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 and suddenly they develop these incredible friendships. I'm like, how did you do that? Um, so, you know, should never be set in stone, but that was always my sort of very logical strategy. Like, okay, this is, this is probably a type of gathering uh, where I'm not going to be at, you know, a significant disadvantage. It's tough. I mean, I, I said I had a good experience. I really did, but I, I didn't have loads and loads of friends and there were definitely times with, where there were things I wanted to do that I felt like perhaps I couldn't or shouldn't do because I would be a burden as well. And that was definitely something that I would often consider was, well, okay, I could do this thing, but someone is going to have to give me a lot of support to do it. Do I always feel comfortable asking for that? And sometimes I would, depending on the person. I mean, I went to Colombia for a year and I went to, I, did, I basically parted for a solid year and I... I I just had friends who were willing to do that and friends who wouldn't let me not do it. They would come to my house and drag me out and give me that support. And I think because they were so determined to, I felt less awkward asking. But there's definitely yeah. sometimes you feel that people are going to say yes, but only because they feel like they should. And that that's yeah. hard. No, indeed. This is it. And, you know, you make fast friends there and, and, and the good ones yeah, stay. definitely. You know, that's the rule. Oh, yeah. Think, these things. Um, did you go straight into your law degree or did you take time out in between? I did. Okay, you did. No, I did. Oh, I went wow. straight out. So I, I was at a crossroads mm -hmm. at the end of my degree or getting, well, last year of my degree, really. I was at a crossroads because I, I was I was really tempted towards interpreting, okay. uh, you know, yeah. translating and interpreting. And I, I, I love that world and I know people who are still in it and they do really well. Um you know, um, and I really wanted to do that. But at the same time, I knew that that's uh, often a freelance world, you know, where you don't know necessarily that you're going to get employed next week, but mm -hmm. you know that you've got a job tomorrow, but who knows after that, right? right? And um, that didn't always appeal to me because I was like, well, I don't know, you know, how that's going to work. 
Um, am I going to a different client site every day? And how is that going to work from an accessibility perspective? Because God knows I do not like to deal with public spaces. <laughs> uh, very often they just stress me out. Um, and so I'm like, all right, how are we going to do this? And, you know, then obviously law was a possibility. I knew a couple of people who had gone down the legal route. And then the thing is, you know, you know, you're going to, as a solicitor anyway, you know, you're going to get a paycheck, right? Yes. You know that if you get in the door, getting in the door is very hard. But if you know that you get in the door, you you, you develop a specialism, you know, you're going to get paid, right? And you're going to be able to have a job every week and you're going to be respected for that. Mm -hmm. So it was very much a conscious decision of what can I do that won't cause me to, you know, uh, completely lose my soul uh but by the same token um you know will guarantee a, a level of employment that is steady and that will you know continue to be there for for years on end right yeah. so very conscious way of thinking and again people don't like to hear this i always tell people don't follow your don't 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 um don't follow your passions oh, necessarily because then passion comes work. <laughs> no i i believe it i believe it i, I I, and I'll st and I'll stand by it. You know, you, then your passion just becomes work. Mm. What do you do when you get home? Oh um, God, and and then, yeah. by the same token, and by the same token, as a blind person, sorry, but you get less latitude to follow your passions than you might yeah. want. Yeah, it, it's true. Unless you know? your passion happens to be something profitable, um, because, I mean, the reality is, blind people have extremely low rates of employment. Um, people with our level of vision. Yeah. So you're very similar to. Do you have any vision? Do you have light perception? Um, no. Well, um, I like, I think maybe, like, I don't know, half a yeah, percent or something. Yeah. If I, if it goes from pitch black to, to, to sunlight, I can, I right, can see that. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, we're nothing, in the category where we are 90% unemployed. Only 10% of us have jobs as opposed yeah. to the 30% of everyone. Is it that yeah, much? The, the RNIB stats. Oh, wow. I didn't actually yeah, know that. I didn't yeah, know the, the breakdown. Yeah, the statistics are actually really good and they differentiate between people with some vision and people with, um, hand oh, movements wow. or less, which out. is us. And so we are only 10% employed, mm. which is quite disturbing so i think oh, it God. is true unfortunately job security has to form part of that because whether we like it or not we've got to pay bills and eat and um hopefully not live in poverty which the sad truth is that many blind people do live in basically poverty so i think being motivated by job security is not what people want to hear but i think sometimes it's a decision you have to make and so then you finished that course and then you had to do your actual training. So did you go and work for a solicitor during that training? Yes. Well, you have to. So um, the, a lot of people, uh, this may have changed now, but a lot of people to do what's called the LPC, um, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know, seven or eight grand to do it. And a lot of people won't do it unless they are sponsored by a firm because it's so risky to, to risk, you know, that much financially and then be at the end of it to have this qualification and no firm to go to to train. So um, I got a sponsorship from a, a firm uh, in the in the Midlands and uh, that's, you know, the whole interview process and stuff like that, which we probably should talk about. Yeah, um, I have questions about that because did you yeah, I know. disclose so we'll get into your that. blindness? Oh, yeah. this is it. Mm. All right. Okay, fine. This is complicated. Um, <laughs> and, and were so, you a student at the time? Like, can you tell me when you applied? Yeah, yeah. Just, so you have yeah. to. You have to. So you're doing the GDL and everyone is applying for these sponsorships mm -hmm. for, for the LPC, right? While we're doing the GDL. Yeah. Um, the, I don't recommend the GDL if you, if, if you are prone to stress. Um <laughs> Because it's the worst year of your life. I'm not even going to lie. Because as I say, you're doing a whole law degree whilst at the same time fighting for this funding to do this yeah. next year and getting a job at the end of it and doing interviews. It's not fun. Um, 
so thank God I didn't have any access issues or I think I might have actually thrown myself out a window. Um, so we're, you know, we're doing all these interviews and part of the problem, which every blind person has, and it's going to be the first thing everyone says, you know, how, how, what was your main issue when you were doing interviews at uni? Experience, right? Yeah. What is, what is the experience that you bring to, to the table of working, in, you know, in a commercial environment of working, you know, and they'll say, well, look, being a waitress is commercial experience, right? Because you're keeping clients happy. You're making sure you're doing things efficiently. Mm -hmm. You're doing X, Y, and Z. You know, uh, you're probably managing difficult people sometimes. Uh, even as a waitress, you can use those examples. Well, we can't. Um, yeah. You know, what's our experience, right? Unfortunately, a lot of the experience that I had at that time was blindness related uh, because I was doing advocacy work in Bermuda during the summers and stuff like that uh, and doing accessibility things back home and, and, and whatnot. So a lot of it was blindness related. So I had to disclose it because otherwise I had no experience to talk about. Um, and it was just relevant. So later, I won't disclose now. I'll say that I, I won't disclose now because I have enough client experience that I can talk about, which is, uh, you know, blindness doesn't relate to. Um, so now I won't disclose. But at the time I had to. And uh, how did yeah. that go? Uh, it had it was mixed. Um, you know, so I was doing the job application thing and two other blind lawyers had done it either at the same time as me or right before, you know, a couple, maybe two years before oh, or whatever. Wow. And not going to lie, there were certain firms that rejected all three of us before even a first interview. Um, and I just think, okay, you knew, Yeah. you knew, and you didn't want to deal. Right. I think that there's a reality to that. I can never mm -hmm. prove it. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't the case in, in every situation. I have no doubt that, I mean, these law firms receive thousands of applications at the end of the day, you know, we're not the best candidates ever to have graced the, uh, the, the, you know, the CV. <laughs> so that's great. You know, that's fine. But I, I have no doubt that there were situations in which, you know, um, the rejection was, was, was VI related. Uh, yeah. I, I'm certain of it. Um, but by the same token, uh, you know, we all did a lot of interviews. We all got rejected like 20 times. That's not an exaggeration. It was about 20. Um, because that's standard for doing that kind of uh, an applications process. Right. And the interview process itself, the main thing that I would say to people doing this or thinking about doing this, not just in law, but if you're going corporate, right? If you're going, uh, you know, company. Anyway, this works, I think, is... They obviously they're not allowed to ask about the blindness stuff, right? They're not allowed to, you have grounds to sue them if they do, right? So in most cases, they will know that and they will actively avoid, you know, asking about those, those things. You have to bring it up in the interview. You absolutely have to, because they're wondering how the hell do you read the screen? How the hell do you research? How do you use Westlaw or whatever, uh, you know, accessibly? How, how does this work? I don't understand how this individual got through law school, right? This is how they're thinking. And you have to take that, you know, by the horns. And typically I would sort of, at the end of every interview, there's the, uh, the question of, you know, they always say, well, have you got any further questions for us? And I said, well, actually, and I would sometimes ask something and I'd say, look, but by the same token, I feel like perhaps maybe we should spend five minutes and let you ask a few questions related to how I access my job, how I would do the work. And I open that door for them because 95% of the time they'll walk through it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think, you know, it's one of those things that you have to do. You have to acknowledge your blindness and actually own it and own it in a good way, right? Own it in the way in which you have answers and also think about some of the questions you might get. Like this is something I've been looking at a lot as, as going into my postgraduate degree and 
even doing PhDs, I mean, I think PhDs are a bit more forgiving because a lot of it's based on my research proposal. But even so, I look at if what questions is someone likely to ask? What don't people know about blindness? Because I don't want someone to ask me a question then to not, like if someone says to me, okay, so how do you use statistics software? How actually do you handle statistics? I need to be able to answer that question. So I need to have thought of what my answer might be. Absolutely. And you have to couch, like every other interview question, they always say, well, think about what the person's actually asking you. What they're asking you in a blindness context is, what problems am I going to have to deal with with you as a new employee? That is what they care about. They may be interested in the answer as well on a, on a level of, I didn't know this, I'm, I'm interested. But what their main uh, question really is, is how is this going to affect the dynamic of my team? Are they going to be able to fit in? Is this new person going to be able to fit in with my team uh, so that, you know, the work can get managed in an efficient way, uh, which, you know, works for the clients? That's what they care about, right? Um, and later up the chain, you know, the questions are around profitability and stuff. And I do want to talk about that because that's really important. Um, but, you know, that's what they care about. Are you going to be profitable? And what's your working life been like in terms of accessibility, in terms of actually what you do as a lawyer, what software you use, just all of that kind of thing? What What's it been like for you? So a complicated question. The first thing that I will lead with is that the firm that I'm at uh, and that I've that I came that I came to five years ago. I've stayed with. They are stunning. They're really, really good people, and they want to help out even when they sometimes can't. Um, they there's always an effort been made mm. uh, in one way or the other, um, and uh, there have been times when an accessibility thing has gone wrong, and that has left someone else holding the bag. Uh, you know, with a client waiting for something or whatever that has happened, and they have been so good about it. Right. So I've been very lucky in that sense. Um, right. And I know it. Uh, and in terms of technology, so I have an assistant who's uh, a paralegal um, and she works part time for the firm and part time for me using access to work funding um, for, for the Brits. Okay. And uh, she basically will make sure that if I've drafted a contract, things are in line, the numbering works, um, the clause references are properly field coded, because that's mm -hmm. not as accessible as you might think to do. Um, at least I don't know how to do it accessibly. Or if I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation, well, okay, that works, that slide looks correct, or you know what I mean, this this kind of stuff. There's a thousand tiny little things. Um, right. Uh, I, I, I remember recently I had to ask her, uh, can you check the Polish retail price index from this graph? Because I can't read it. Uh, the, the weird stuff that you sometimes <laughs> don't realize is accessible, isn't accessible mm. until you need it. Uh, so yeah, I've always had a paralegal, um, who is, who has a law degree and who, you know, probably wants to come in as a trainee, for example, they, they often become paralegals for a couple of years if they can't get a training contract straight away and they will you know, come in at that level and work with me. And the way I always deal with that, so you learn very quickly how to manage someone, by the way, because they are working with you. They are expecting you to lead and to give instructions and to manage the personality of whoever that person is. And all of that matters. And you yeah. get thrown in to that your first day as a trainee. You are being managed and you are learning how to be managed and how to produce work. You are also managing and learning how to manage someone else who is more junior to you, but maybe who doesn't have any more experience in the job market than you. Um, maybe they have more, which can be worse. Mm. Um, you know, if you get a paralegal who's been a paralegal for 10 years, they have very distinct ideas on how they do things. And that ain't going to work for you most of the time. 
Uh, and so you have to retrain those expectations in someone who is senior to you in age and in experience. Um, so you learn to manage someone and you learn how to do it uh, in a way that doesn't cause ructions, uh, you know, between you because you'll be working very closely with that person and that person that's hard How that's very hard that? and it's I, I it, it's just an experience thing it's an experience thing it's you know being able to handle a situation where for example they make a mistake and you look like an idiot on a call with a client and that happens it's happens it's happened to every blind lawyer that i know mm-hmm. um one of them uh, last week missed a court date because their paralegal didn't tell them in time um that wasn't a f- oh, fun no. phone call that i got from them last week i'll say that um so it happens to everyone Ooh. and uh you have to handle that properly and be you know be very firm and sort of say you know this expectation was not met and this is this is what you're here for kind of thing at the same time okay everyone's human please do mm-hmm. not ever do this again because you know that's we're paying you to do this correctly kind of thing and and you know right. you will also make a mistake as a junior lawyer uh, you will make mistakes where you get called up on the carpet by someone very, very senior. And so, you know, it's it's an experience both ways. Right. Do you think making mistakes is hard, bringing your blindness into it? Or do you think people have viewed it like in the fact that you're just, you were a junior lawyer and that happens? Or do you think that, were you ever worried, yeah. I guess is what I'm trying oh, to yeah. ask, that people you, might... You want to make, yeah. uh, obviously as a junior lawyer anyway, you want to make as few mistakes as possible. But as a VI lawyer, you want to make even fewer of them. Um, right? Because obviously um yeah 100 percent. and sometimes the mistake isn't you sometimes the mistake is access right and has that happened to you where there's been poor accessibility oh yeah that has definitely happened that has definitely happened um and you know you, you then have to own it with a client there right and be like okay look to be honest yeah you know this is why i didn't see it and sometimes you will in the heat of the battle have to tell them yeah um by the way i can't see um and my clients have pretty much universally been awesome about it. And a lot of people are really nervous about that, right? especially now with screen share, right? Because everyone uses screen share and that is not accessible. And of course, you then have to tell a client who you've probably worked with for the last year. Yeah, by the way, I can't see um, because I can't and I can't use screen share. Yeah, of course. That ma- that makes sense. And and do you think like in terms of the systems you use at work, how has the accessibility been with those? Um universe well, almost universally problematic. Um so there are systems out there which are used by many many law firms all across the world that are not accessible. Right? They they're used in thousands of huge huge installations across the world and they're not accessible out the box. And so you have to use private scripting contractors to make these things accessible and of course that only helps you right that doesn't help the next person at another firm in california who who wants to use that same package and who can't and then they have to get an external scripter in to make it work for them right and the whole problem with that is well you know what actually we should be in a situation where things that are used by this many people are accessible do you think there's some irony that the law profession is not accessible and that, I love it. you know that there are accessibility laws but obviously those laws aren't strong enough but there is a certain irony isn't there Oh 100% and especially because you know it's a bit of a stereotype like blind lawyer stereotype right um hello it's a thing um and so you know you would think that if there were a profession where I would be able to for example view all my financials time record uh, access my case management, etc., and in a completely usable, accessible way, it would be law, right? Because, you know. 
So do you think companies need to be more accountable and actually produce software that's accessible? My thing is, and this is a harsh truth, um, but it's, it is one. Um, and that is that I can tell you for an absolute fact that when your firm is negotiating uh, the software import for, uh, you know, their file management solution or their financial solution or whatever, to point out to them that it is inaccessible will not derail those negotiations, right? They care, even the firms that do care, like mine did. I negotiated uh, the contract for one of the biggest systems that we use across the firm, um, yeah, made the changes and negotiated it with the other side directly. Um, also, I might have, you know, snuck in a few digs whilst on that call about how accessible their software isn't. I might have done that. Um, but by the same token, saying to everyone, hey, this is really isn't accessible. It's not going to derail those negotiations. It just isn't. So what about these software companies themselves? Exactly. That's where it has to happen. they need to be? That's where yeah. it has to happen. But then what is the, um, because, of, because of the point that I just made, what is the financial incentive? What is their incentive to make something accessible from a purely profit and loss point of view? Well, there isn't one because, like I just said, it's not going to derail any negotiations with any firm if you point out that they're not accessible. Because I suppose the only incentive would be that they could be penalized, you know, that there would be some kind of, um, if it was a law, for example, yeah, it, that could be a financial incentive. Yeah, and this is it. And I, I, I've come around to that way of thinking over the past sort of two or three years because I always thought, well, engagement is the right way to do it and you engage with developers and, and you'll get there, um, you know, with that. And you can cut through the red tape by engaging with the right person at the right time. And I have revised that view in the last few years because it doesn't work. At this stage, I think the only way to get around this problem is, 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 is at a legal level. And that presents its own challenges, like what is accessible? How do you legislate for accessibility and also what's the difference between something that is accessible versus something that is usable um, and those are really important questions i'm not qualified to answer them um, but they are important it's a problem and someone's got to solve it i mean perhaps not either of us but it, it has to be solved um how do you think the profession is going to be for blind people going on from now so you're you're a lawyer this is your job you know you found ways of doing what you do are you concerned about the future yes uh, unequivocally i would say yes there's a lot of strings to that bow right so the first thing is um this is uh an area that every blind lawyer i know has dealt with but we've never spoken about it uh publicly i think i can't find any public discussions of this uh, that I'm about to get into. And so this might be a first, um, but we'll see. And I'd be also interested in how lawyers in different countries deal with this question. Um, so this is around, you know, billing and profitability, right? So your first question as a lawyer is, are you profitable, right? Are you profitable for the firm? Um, you're charging out at X amount per hour. Uh, that means that you have an annual monthly or annual target of Y. What do you have to do to make that, right? So, the question is, of course, as someone who is VI, you will, especially in the early part of your career, but even, you know, even where I'm at, you will be slower. You will be slower than your sighted counterparts, unless you're on the phone negotiating with someone where obviously everyone's on the same page. To draft a contract or to, to deal with some of the things that we deal with, you will be naturally slower. And there will also be paralegal time, you know what I mean, to, to, to make the thing work and to look right. So 
And that's a cost, even though it's not it's not directly billed, because obviously clients aren't expected to cover that cost reasonably. Um, and where you end up with then is that most of the VI lawyers that I know have lower targets against their cited counterparts. And the obviously the problem with that is then in pure commercial terms, how do you make the case for a blind lawyer before they come into the business? And so the thing that I would say about that is you know, there isn't really a, a way of getting around that because as the access cha challenges increase, the time that is taken will increase. So where you end up with is that you're working, you know, I, I my, my rule of thumb is if I've done like a six hour chargeable a day, I've probably done a 10 hour day, you know, at least sometimes less if it's, if it's particularly good day. Um, so then what does that mean, right? It means that to become a VI lawyer and to be successful at it, uh, you know, you will be doing extra work to get to the same place. So with the increased access challenge, with the best will in the world of the firm, you know, they, they're sort of like, well, what do we do with this? So I, I would be very concerned with, uh, you know, blind lawyers in a private practice you know, client-facing context right. from, so from that point of view. what do you think is the solution? I mean, mandating accessibility? Or... Part of it, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but also what I would say on an individual blindness level is, you know, if, if individuals are going that route, you know, think about perhaps not being client-facing. Think about being an in-house lawyer for a company where you're not charging by the hour, right? Where you're, you're, you know, your profitability is not limited, is not directly linked to your number of hours on the clock. Um, you know, you'd be an in-house for, you could be an in-house lawyer for a company, you could be a government lawyer, um, or, you know, you could be in, in any of those kind of situations uh, where you're not so directly pressured. Um, and I know a lot of, I know some VI lawyers who have done that, who have made that jump, and I know others who really want to. Um, so, you know, that is just the reality of the situation. Um, but private practice also can be awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. And and what what skills I suppose like if a blind person said, "Well, I want to be a lawyer," what what is your response to that? Um, so, firstly, be good with tech. Be very good with tech. Be above average with tech. Um, I would say uh, that's your first thing. And know what your access needs are in terms of tech. You know, know if you need to get scripts and know what that how that works and and and, and all the rest of that. So that's your first thing. But I would say that about most jobs nowadays. Um, you know, be be fundamentally above average with technology. Um, the other I would say is if you can do something like a I don't know a public speaking course or something like that, or if you can if you can do one of those sort of type of things before you get into presenting to people or or doing the interviews or whatever, uh, do as much of that as you possibly can to see how you come off. You know, learn how to present yourself, whether that is against two people in a client room or you know a uh, hundred people in a presentation learn how you do that and get used to doing it um that would be my second thing and the third thing i would say is get experience in something either commercial or team related or you know bring to the table in an interview an example of a situation where you've led a team you've done a massive group thing or you've done something commercial in some way or businessy um or if you're not going directly into, you know, commercial law, then, you know, we're a volunteer for something like the CAB in the UK, the Citizens Advice Bureau, where you're giving advice to people and you're dealing with people in emotional situations and learning how to deal with the 
the, the human element. Because uh, this was said to me, uh, you know, a number of years ago when I was interviewing, and I, I remember it all the time. Um, when you're being interviewed, generally, the person across the table is, again, asking about your skills, but also saying, can I deal with this person at 1130 at night when we're on a massive deal that has to be signed at 9am the next day and we're all stressed out of our minds? Is that a person I want next to me then? That's a good, I think that's a good question to ask in life in general. (laughs) 100%, 100%. But it's so important, especially mm. as if you're in a VI context, it's so important to get into the mindset of the person who's across the table from yeah. you. And to really understand that. that That's great advice, actually. And I guess one final question is what what kind of your hopes and plans for the future, if you're comfortable sharing? Um, it's, it's a good one. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty like I'm sort of stay, you know sticking it basically at the moment uh, and, you know, staying in the loop and, and, and hopefully for, for some time. I... I don't see myself progressing to like partner level in, in private practice because of the financial stuff and, and all that. And I have some stressors around that. Um, and it's possible that at that point I would sort of go in house or shift sort of focus to a certain extent so that I wasn't quite so focused on the billable hour. Um, that is kind of where I would like to end up with that, but I don't see a point at which I'm not like practicing or dealing with, I don't, I don't see myself like going into teaching, I don't think, per se. Um, I cannot imagine you, know. you teaching. I'm no, sorry. No, indeed. I, I, I And I, pref- I prefer to be at the coalface, you know what I mean? I do. Um, and, and You would you know, hate teaching. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's not... <laughs> it's not really... Maybe I would go into... Maybe I would do some kind of slightly more, you know, data privacy advocacy kind of stuff or working for that kind of an organization that's that's arguing for data privacy rights and all those kind of things that I, I believe in. Um, so it's still legal, but a different side of law kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I want to be at the coalface. I want to be doing something with it um, in some way. So who knows exactly where that's going to lead. But um, yeah, I got some plans. Well, thank you. This, is, this has been wonderful. And I just really appreciate you giving me so much of your time to record this. I know we've been talking about it for ages and ages. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Working Blind. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. For more of my advocacy initiatives, including my blog, visit my website, http colon slash slash catchthesewords.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at catchthesewords. That's C-A-T-C-H-T-H-E-S-E-W-O-R-D-S. If you have any comments or feedback, please email me holly at catchthesewords.com.